0: David Michael Wolfe is writing a sequel to his Trump exposé Fire and Fury. What I want to know is what other journalistic masterpieces and I am making air quotes when I say that deserve a sequel or reboot. This is too hard of a question.
1: I uh, can can I just too say too hard. Well, there's too many options out there. I immediately go to like the classics. Can I? Can Can we do, like, In Cold Blood 2, The Return? <laughs> In Colder Blood?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, In Cold Blood 2, T-O-O. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? I thought maybe, like, Silenter Spring. Oh. Yeah, right? It's a classic. The Jungles. <laughs> <laughs> that was a big one. And finally, <laughs> Let Us Now Praise Famous Men Reloaded. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Just just, a, just a, or a few more, a few more, fa- let us praise a few more famous men. Yeah, how many famous men could we possibly praise? <laughs> You're listening to the podcasting equivalent of a shameless cash grab. This is the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast we are not allowed to write that Trump's time in grade school prepared him for the Kim Summit. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer, (laughs) your Ringer syllabus today. Check out all of our NBA Finals aftermath, including Kevin O'Connor on The Warriors. Sunday night, no spoilers, was apparently a great episode of Westworld. Check Mm -hmm. out David on The Recapables and Allison Herman, kind of offering a counterpoint in print.
1: My arch nemesis.
0: And David, Sean Fennessy, and I convened a very special rewatchable summit to discuss Jurassic Park, which just turned 25 years old. We are old. We are old, my friend. That's what you
1: do when you get to a certain age. You get to do 25th anniversary editions of your childhood movies and host politics podcasts. That's
0: that's (laughs) we're there. Yeah, there we are. All right. look for that this week. All right, David, four topics for you today. First, we talk about the legacy of the writer, traveler and man of the world. Anthony Bourdain. Second, ditto for conservative columnist Charles Krauthammer, who announced this week that he has sadly just weeks to live. We'll talk about the Fourth Estate, the Showtime doc series about the New York Times. And finally, we'll talk about that Fire and Fury sequel. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, when I heard Friday that Anthony Bourdain had committed suicide and watched Twitter for the next couple of hours, I think the thing I was most struck by was, here's a guy, David, who had something like 100% acclaim in American life. Yeah, which is pretty damn rare,
1: especially for someone who is is relatively politically outspoken as he was. Yeah, I think that he had the sort of uh, politics ethos, whatever of a of a that the kind of blue America could could glom onto. But he also just had a just sort of abject manliness that a, kind of transcended, uh, you know, whatever your your personal affiliation was. He also made one or two of the great like best shows, most universally beloved TV shows of the past decade. You know, I mean, like you can't, you don't have to watch, you did not have to watch Parts Unknown, but everybody that did, I felt like loved it.
0: Let's so so let's drill down a little bit to the universality of Anthony Bourdain's appeal. Uh-huh. A couple of things I thought about. This is this is pretty specific, but he made the food critic into a rock critic. Yeah. Right? You know, uh, no offense to Jonathan Gold, who I love reading in the LA Times, but nobody looks at Jonathan Gold and goes, that is my idea. did Not we, just of a writer, but of a, but of a, but of a, sure, right? absolutely.
1: Didn't we talk recently about how, didn't you tell me a story about how all the old rock critics in Brooklyn are becoming food critics? Yeah, I wrote it on The Ringer. Oh, that's right. Okay.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes, that, that, that sort of has like you age into food criticism. Yeah. But he gave it this, he, he made it punk rocky, right? Mm mm-hmm. You know, there was like his stories about drug use his just kind of like, you know, the way he wrote with a meat cleaver to attempt a very bad metaphor. He, he just was like, he, I think he just made that world very fun. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that's just like, you know, I don't think we can totally credit Anthony Bourdain with the giant amount of food writing there is in the world, but probably a pretty big chunk of it. Right. At least kind of following in his attitude for
1: sure. I mean, the cool, like I can't. On more than one occasion, I can remember sitting in a restaurant, sitting in like a hot new restaurant, hot whatever, restaurant in Brooklyn, and noticing that there would be a guy, and not this is not the same guy, there would be a guy sitting by himself against a wall with a meat cleaver tattooed on his forearm or, or, or like the, or, or the fork or something like that. And you would just be like, oh, that's, that's the food critic. He's come to write about this for whatever website or, you know, and that was like, he was
0: the coolest guy in the room. Totally. And the, and the idea, I think too, that like he could have been a lot of things, right? So he writes, he writes, he writes a novel first mm-hmm. bone in the throat is I believe yeah. the name of it. Then he writes kitchen confidential, yeah. which becomes this giant book. And he could have gone a lot of ways with his career, right? He could have been guy with show on food network. Who's like cooking or doing something silly, come Mm -hmm. out with a cookbook, right? This is the conventional path. But what he does is he's like, I kind of don't think I'm that interesting just on my own. So I'm going to go explore the world, Mm -hmm. right? Sure. To, To the shows you mentioned. And I think that's the other thing. that's interesting. is like that he does is help. And again, he didn't invent this, but use food as a way to like, the idea is that in food, we could find clues to what the world is about. Yeah. And what people are about. And that just sort of expands a whole journalistic genre.
1: Yeah. And I think part of his appeal is that he was sort of unapologetically a man of the world, too. Yes. That he, a citizen of the world, I guess I should say, that he would could go to all these places. And he's not coming in as a celebrity, even though he certainly was, right? He's not sitting at the finest restaurants and expecting you know, he didn't. He doesn't pre- come in with an entourage and like you know, give me your chef's best food. He kind of goes in through the back door, finds connections with his subjects through, oftentimes non-food related, you know, points of character or whatever. Or we both, you know, we went to go see a chicken, fu- you know, a, ch- yeah, a chicken fight before we, <laughs> before we going to go get food or we, you know, we, we're the Muay Thai dojo before we go <laughs> eat or whatever, and then. um yeah and then just sort of like becomes part of one with the place and then backdoors into you know street fair or whatever. and exactly. that's it's it, there's just he um he yeah, there's a lot of the, the relation that he he showed in a lot of ways that the relationship between us and between food is is a more than just an a to b
0: sort of scenario, and it takes sort of an interesting mind to wrap your mind around that. And that to say that's where I want my TV show to that's, go. It takes it like the pitch meeting for the show
1: must have been incomprehensible to whatever execs greenlit it. It's on the Travel Channel originally. Yeah, I think
0: so. So maybe it fits a little more comfortably there than CNN.
1: Yeah. And then there, so there's I mean, the, the, the weird thing is it's not no one would say it's a fit at CNN, although it's a perfect show for them because it's one of those things that can eat up weekend hours and reruns and, and late night and that kind of thing. But in a lot of ways, that's, it's one of the very few successes that CNN or news television broadly defined has found in recent years, as far as kind of transcending the norm. Exactly. And still not feeling exploitative or out of place or whatever, <laughs> you say.
0: know. <laughs> so it's not to catch a predator on MSNBC. Exactly. Right. Or lock
1: up raw, you know, like I'm, I'm, as much as I love jail shows, uh, yeah, I always um, yeah, it's it's it's. There's just something like it is, you know. There's it's not just news. Every cable channel over the past ten, fifteen years has tried things that just seem wrong for what we perceive it to be. Right, scripted stuff on the History Channel, or you know, take your pick. Reality shows, just you know, whatever. The Chrisleys on USA coming on after WWE wrestling is always just like, well, I don't understand what we're doing here. You don't even have whatever. But Anthony Bourdain is like, uh, parts unknown is like it made. It didn't make complete sense, but it made enough sense. And there's a, and there was a way in which, like, they had this symbiotic relationship. CNN legitimized his enterprise a little bit, and he um, legitimized them in a totally different way.
0: Yeah, he pulls them out of red breaking news alert mm-hmm. Trump world. You know, and he did seem like of a piece with, like, Jake Tapper, right? Like, certain CNN personalities mm-hmm. who seem to be slightly bigger than whatever subject was in front of them. Here's another reason people liked Anthony Bourdain. Everybody knew Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, I learned on Twitter on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody well, a, has met Anthony Bourdain.
1: That's sort of the. I mean, I don't want to knock anybody. We were not at. We're not at the. You know, making jokes about people's Twitter joke section of the show yet. But there is a sort of the 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 very modern the the very modern form of humblebrag obituary where you're just like I just want to say I was you know had the honor of having dinner. With whoever just passed away, and you know, and 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 this is what I learned from them, and they meant everything to me.
0: I'm so glad you said that because I wanted to say that, and I was weighing whether it was just the <laughs> right time or not. There was a certain cred established, you know, on yeah. Friday by saying, "Oh well, I was I was delighted to have known mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain."
1: Right? Well, I just want to stipulate: there's a little bit there's a difference between a close friend and someone who. You know, shared a bowl of you know uh, fried rice with him one time because Ramen. they were covering for covering you know writing a story about him.
0: Will you ask me uh, for the listeners if I have had dinner with Anthony? I was Bourdain? about to
1: do that. I I know the answer. Have you ever
0: had dinner with uh, with Anthony Bourdain? Funny you should ask, David. I have. <laughs> Did you tweet about it? I didn't. No. He... Two two thousand seven. Um. It was at a Japanese place in New York. I wish I could. It was, It was you know, perfectly off the grid mm-hmm. for Andy Bordeaux. It sort was of a piece for outside. Yeah. And so here's a couple of funny things about it. He just come back from Southeast Asia and he was or done some shows about Southeast Asia. And he was very in like, Brian, the colors, the feelings, you know, just, just sort of like a rapt traveler, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't understand until I went there a couple of years later. It does, does kind of thing. The other thing he did in that, which I think explains part of his popularity is. He decided to start blasting away at Rachel Ray. Like, oh yeah, I, no, I remember this. Anthony Bourdain really picked, like, cleverly picked his enemies, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember—I don't remember asking about it. Maybe I did. I had to look up the quotes. She's got a magazine, a TV empire, all these best-selling books. I'm guessing she's not hurting for money. She's hugely influential. Dot dot dot, and she's endorsing Dunkin' Donuts. It's like endorsing crack for kids. <laughs> I'm not a very ethical guy Bourdain continued I don't have a lot of principles but somehow that seems to be over the line juvenile diabetes has exploded half of Americans don't have necks and she's up there saying eat some fucking Dunkin Donuts you look great in that swimsuit eat another donut that's evil that's what he said that is just fantastic the quotes were picked up by page six uh, which is the only time in my life that's happened you'll be shocked that none of my sports media stories have uh, have caused the same tidal waves <laughs> In New York gossip circles. But anyway, another thing about it was he picked the right enemies. And by the way, this is something else I saw in a few of the Anthony Bourdain remembrances and obits. People said, he said what was on his mind. He was Mm. never afraid, right? Yeah. I think that is, I think Anthony Bourdain might have gotten as close to that as a media celebrity could have. But as Pete Wells noted in his little remembrance in the New York Times, he could also do like, oh, you want to hear me? You want to hear a chef cussing in front of your trade group? Yeah. Here you go. Want me to attack want me to attack like a Lamo celebrity chef? Here you go. You know, Andy Greenwald wrote that piece for us at Grantland, which mm-hmm. he was remembering on Twitter about like when he became kind of allowed himself to become like a goofy reality TV star himself for like 5 minutes. Yeah. And that's totally like, you know, again, nothing nothing against that, but but he definitely, you know, there was there were there were moments in his life where he a like, put a quarter in me and here here comes the here comes the pain, right? Here comes here. Here's exactly what you want.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a, a he, um, Mark Maron re released in his interview, his WTF podcast interview with Bourdain this week, and and they they start off the show by comparing their lives. Uh, that that he sort of had had become more of a like something akin to a stand up comic as his career progressed because he was doing all of these speaking engagements. Like that's where the money is. the corporate boards and whatever else. And there's a little bit of the. I'm sure there's a little bit of of uh, you know a dancing monkey to that whole thing. You know, I mean, you're just you're doing you're you're showing up to to do what someone else wants you to do for a certain amount of money and whatever. But like, there was a there was just a whether or not it was real, there did seem to be a sort of legitimacy that you know a realness underneath that undergirded the whole thing. It's easy to get up there and talk to a uh, you know a, a group of businessmen. Um, You know, for money, if you're just sort of being yourself the
0: whole time, if it's a put on, it's actually harder. Let's say a few words about Charles Krauthammer. Oh, yeah. Washington fixture, Fox News contributor and Washington Post columnist who also announced on Friday, he wrote this very touching note where he talked about the fact that his cancer is returned. He said, my doctors tell me their best estimate is that I have only a few weeks left to live. This is the final verdict. My life, my fight, excuse me, is over. And then at the end, he says, I leave this life with no regrets. It was a wonderful life, full and complete with the great loves and great endeavors that make it worth living. I am sad to leave, but I leave with the knowledge that I lived the life that I intended. He is an an interesting guy to me because when I got to Washington in 2001 or 2000, he was still, I feel it was sort of like, it's a little analogous to sports columnists, right? There was this last generation of the op-ed columnist Mm. As this towering figure. Yeah. Yep. When it was like Ken, Mike Kinsley, George Will, Charles Crowdhammer, Bob Novak was still alive. Mm-hmm. And that was like this, that was the job, right? Yeah. You were in the elect and you got column collections and you got a gig on TV. Yeah. And it was just like. so. My I th- column collections are big. <laughs> <laughs> right. Remember? So it was like the 80s was, we lived the 80s through George Will column collections. Uh-huh. And the thing about Crowdhammer, too, is I think part of the. Part of what I've seen in the tributes for him is a sense that he's a guy. It was like part of that that same era where it's you're sort of the gentleman conservative, right? The gentlemanly conservative, both mm-hmm. in the world of conservative opinion, which we know can somehow not be always so kind, yeah, and gentlemanly, and also in the world of Fox News, right? Like he yeah. was the guy. He was like the smart guy on Fox News. He was the smart guy. He was the guy's like I actually have principles here. Right.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely true. I mean, and and, and he he definitely has principles, and uh, you know, I mean, there's a, there's certainly a degree to which that, and you could say it about a lot of people. You say that about George Will on MSNBC when he's been pop, popping up there, the 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 prince, the seeming like the 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 principled, serious person in the room, sort of inoculates you from the repercussions of your bad opinions, <laughs> you know, of, of right. your problematic opinions. Well, uh, that was
0: old journalism, right? Yeah, it's like. This person may be seeing an idea that I find – or writing an idea that I find revolting, but they're doing it in this gentlemanly way and we all kind of pretend to get along in this world. And one of the things people react to now is some of the people are saying, gosh, couldn't we – can't we go back to this world Mm -hmm. of a polite society where we all write op-eds and we all go to the same dinner parties? And some people are saying, no, 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 that was terrible because it papered over all these differences and there was this awful Washington consensus which excluded certain people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean Kreidhammer was was an ideal Fox News talking head because he was just sort of, you know, he was he was the vegetable course. You know, I mean, you, you can't have I mean, Sean Hannity screaming is I mean, you can eat a lot of he's the junk food and that's great. Everybody wants to eat junk food all the time, but you got it but like you appreciate it when the, you know, every when, when when the when the real stuff comes in. Um but, you know, he's never he he nor anyone like him will ever have a hour-long primetime show on Fox. And, no, and that was sort of his charm.
0: Yeah, a couple of interesting things too. So it's this: is, he was when he was at his in, in Harvard Medical School studying, he dove off a, a diving board and wound up severing his spinal cord, which left him in a wheelchair for his entire mm-hmm. life, which is amazing. I also knew, and again, this will be the last, the first and final press box where I say I have had a meal with several of the people <laughs> we're talking about, just because we're <laughs> going to run out. But um, he invited the whole Slate staff over to lunch one time. And I remember him like he was quoting the Maltese Fal- lines from the Maltese Falcon. Oh wow! Like Sam Spade talking about his dead partner Miles Archer mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I was like, "Kind of had a flirt." Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> "Not what you would expect out of Charles crowdham <laughs> No, but uh, that had dared it. But he was—he was—he was, as he was in print, an extremely or is a very gentlemanly guy. All right, David. Now it's time for the Overworld Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious. That all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Last Thursday, David, Donald Trump tweeted, Isn't it ironic? Mm -hmm. Getting ready to go to the G7 in Canada, blah, blah, blah. Where do you think the children of the 90s jokes went on Twitter at that point?
1: Um, Who is Alanis Morissette?
0: That's right. There were a bunch. I enjoyed this response from CNN's uh, Tom Clut, who writes about the media. If you made an Alanis joke today... You don't get to dunk on Dennis Miller for two weeks. Sorry, those are the rules, bud. <laughs> in other news, Rodney Hood of the Cleveland Cavaliers showed that he had a pulse in game three after generally being silent through the entire playoffs. But it was an overworked Twitter joke to say some version of quote, if only Rodney Hood had help. <laughs> that's kind of good. Yeah, it's kind of good. All right, and last Thursday we learned via a tweet from the Washington Post, John Dossey. EPA chief Scott Pruitt asked his security detail to pick up dry cleaning and find his favorite lotion at the Ritz-Carlton. Oh. You know, Scott Pruitt has – this is like scandal number 95 for Scott Pruitt. Um, anyway, pick up his favorite lotion at the Ritz-Carlton to which a, an astoundingly large number of people replied, put the lotion in the basket. Oh, no. Is it, uh, are you kind of as surprised as I am that are? Buffalo Bill from *Silence oh, of the Lambs* has gosh. has that kind of cultural I resonance.
1: Our, I mean, we all our boss is, has has contributed to that uh, that being a cultural force to, to you know some
0: extent. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told It rubs the lotion on its skin, or it gets the hose again. Now it places the lotion in the basket. Now it places the lotion in the basket. Put the fucking lotion in the basket. It's so wild to me. All right. Thanks to Matthews Island. Dave and I will be back to talk about the New York Times and the Fourth Estate after this break. A quick break to thank our friends at the rent-a-car company, Sixth. Sixth offers a whole new rental car experience with top-quality rental cars at affordable prices. Sixth, well-known for their car rental services in Europe, is now rapidly expanding across the United States. Sixth treats you like a VIP the moment you walk through the door. All of their branches have an innovative look and feel and accept mobile reservations. You can rent cool cars like a 2018 Range Rover or Mercedes C-Class convertible at affordable prices. Six locations can be found in major cities like Miami, L.A., Las Vegas, Atlanta, Dallas, Philadelphia, Seattle, and over 105 countries internationally. Six has branches in 2,200 locations. Actually, more than that. Uh, at spots like the airport, train stations, cruise ports, and hotel. Head to Sixth.com to find a branch near you or your next destination. That's S-I-X-T dot com. Sixth Drive. First class. Pay economy. All right, third, David. I spent the weekend watching The Fourth Estate, the new Showtime documentary series about the New York Times. You're already smiling. This is what Brian Curtis spends his weekends doing. <laughs> it's really good. I really liked it. Um, I spent
1: my weekend watching the Fifth Estate starring Benedict Cumberbatch, so I'm ill equipped <laughs> to have this
0: segment to discuss in this segment. Um now we will compare the two yeah. since I have not seen that one. Um so you liked it. It was really interesting. I think it's like the the cultural resonance here is Donald Trump is attacking the New York Times yeah. pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. So let us show who New York Times people really are. Mm-hmm. Let us put a Human face? Fa- yeah, on bylines like Mark Mazzetti and Elizabeth Bumiller and people like that. Mm-hmm. And show them it mostly take it mostly concerns the workings of the Washington Bureau of New York Times, mm-hmm. the way they're covering Trump, particularly the way they're sure. covering Trump in Russia. Um, but to me, the joy of it was just seeing what normal journalistic life looks like. There's a scene where Trump gives what I believe is his first State of the Union. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's sitting there watching it in the Washington Bureau, right? And they're like, what's the news here? What's our lead, right? This is this is kind of a rote story, but you have to look at this speech and quickly determine what is the most important thing here.
1: That's interesting. They yeah.
0: decide it's about immigration. Then the funny thing happens, David. <laughs> a note comes from New York after they've written and filed the story that says, actually, that's not your lead. This is your lead. And it's an idea they've rejected as being too silly. So they have to rewrite the whole story. And they're all mad. And they're really mad. And it's just a great moment of newspaper bigfooting yeah. And, and this is this is what happens in newspapers and journalistic institutions all the time, right? The cool part of it, the romantic part of it is we're gonna go out and rustle up some Russian news about Trump. Mm-hmm. The actual day to day reality is my editor just did something shitty to me and now I'm mad. Yeah. Like that, that that's actual journalism. Yeah. And those to me were the most amazing touches of it. Stuff about Maggie Haberman talking about spending time away from her kids. Maggie Haberman cursing as she drives down the freeway because she's trying to talk to a source at the same time. See all these journalists at home before they go into the office, right? And that I think is beyond somebody for somebody like me, the kind of looky-loo value. There is this sort of amazing sense that oh, these are real people.
1: Yeah. So this is that's my that's what that's what interested me. I actually did watch a lot of. I watched everything that was available on Showtime's YouTube channel about this. And so this is my question coming out of all that. Yeah. I understand the value as a viewer and uh-huh. as someone sitting, as a host of the press box, uh, media critic as you are to um, in, in this show. It certainly seems like it's incredibly compelling in its way. But what is the... What, when When the New York Times agreed to make this series... What do you think their motivation was? Was it to put a human face on it to sort of to combat in a sort of subtle way the demonization of the press? Um, is it just a just it's it's another form of journalism. So they're signing on to, you know, to further that kind of broad goal. I guess it, I guess I just it, it makes me wonder. One, practically, well, one, I'll start with this one philosophically. What is the, I mean, does does making it into a multi, does making their process into a multimedia Showtime show really do anything to benefit journalism other than, I mean, or is it, you know, other than just making them minor celebrities? Uh, or, and, and two, on a practical level, from what I saw, like, isn't this just going to end up burning sources, especially in the White House? I mean, isn't Trump going to be pissed off by just having to relive some of these moments like that?
0: A lot of good questions there. One, I think. When you talk about rebutting kind of the criticism. Yeah. The interesting thing about the New York Times is they're in a really weird place PR wise. Yeah. Which is they're doing the best journalism right down the United States. But when Trump says something crazy and untrue about them, they can't. It's not like Dean Bacay can get on Twitter and go, listen, you bum like LeBron James. This is what it is. In fact, there's scenes in the show was like, don't engage on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Don't get into fights on Twitter because all you're doing is undermining. So they're in a weirdly like curious position of having to be silent mm-hmm. and really only through a third party like this can they kind of rebut the stuff that's coming out of the white house good okay I see which that. i think is interesting um on the sourcing it's Wait, so-
1: and, and does it help them just as an aside do you think it's a it's it does it help them to be able to show their staffers with the quippy comeback and then have someone else say don't actually say that online because it shows their restraint. Is, the, is yeah. there is the implicit restraint part of the, like, like an actual positive there, for them? There's
0: a few scenes where where Glenn Thrush is like, I'm about to tweet this. And Haberman's like, no, no, please actually don't do that. And he just tweets it anyway. And then was <laughs> like, let's go have a meeting in the office. On your bit about sources, you're right. There's no way you can show that. So when a guy like Michael Schmidt, who's been breaking a billion mm-hmm. Russia stories for them, it, there, there is this kind of funny cheating thing where it's like, Man, how are we going to get in the story? The Washington Post is breaking stuff. They're on the scent. How are we going to break something today? And then it's like, cut, and then Mike Schmitz well, here's a scoop. I just found out that X happened. Whoa, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to see like the the 50 calls, 48 of which were fruitless, mm-hmm. and then the two that you got the story from. But right. Of course, we can't see that.
1: I guess I don't mean, I guess I'm, I. I di- it didn't occur to me that they would actually be literally burning sources. But I mean, like, if... I don't know. Just kind of showing how the donuts get made to uh, call back to our buddy Anthony Bourdain, um, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that just sort of... I don't know. It just seems like it just seems it, it just seems like it undermines the process a little bit. Like I don't I don't know if I want to call Maggie Haberman because I don't know if the camera crew is there.
0: <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's sort of unclear how many people knew. That she was being filmed during these things. Of course, you can't hear the voice on the other end of the phone,
1: right? But going, but even moving forward, we know it's just we know they're done with this theoretically. But it's like you know, you're never going to assume if if you know if you talk to somebody who was on like the OC on MTV back in the day, you'd never be 100 percent sure they weren't being followed by cameras
0: if you saw them now. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think the balance is like you show these people as real humans, mm-hmm. so and you you do give away a little bit of the mystique. Yeah. Right. The only th- I think the only thing a journalist with more mystique would be the New Yorker like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. You know, you show like Adam Gopnik pulling his hair out while he writes a book review yeah. or something like that. Or David Remnick. Right. I mean, it'd be, it'd be it, would be it does feel like a violation in a way, just the fact that it's happening because these are such yeah. sacro, sacrosanct media institutions. But I guess, I guess what they've decided is, that, you know, peek behind the curtain does have consequences. And by the way, the other thing I'd add is the Times, is, this is not a New York Times joint, right? This is a documentary filmmaker, Liz Garbus who went into the of Times yeah, to yeah. do this. The Times, I think, does, like everybody, including The Ringer, think of itself as a content factory now. Mm-hmm. So now you see this new show they're going to have on FX, right? Yeah. And this is a way, This, in a weird way, this is like the Trojan horse for them to dip their toe into pre- prestige television. Because that's where they're going to go, right? they had the daily they and, want to do tv shows yeah and there,
1: i know there's something they struggle with this i mean this is not not uh, it's not a problem with the showtime show this is a struggle depicted in the showtime show that they are um when they had to start laying off editors i know that's in the, the showtime show like the financial realities of do of of um making journalism in 2018 or in the 2010s is is a part of the reality that they deal with um And there was a there was a line in one of the in one of the uh, segments that I saw where someone was just like, you can't you can't start firing editors or journalists because you're going to play into Trump's narrative. And this is uh, I I mean, that's that's really interesting to me. Um, But you're right. The multimedia like it, it was only a matter of time before they started going multimedia, because that's the direction of the future. That's how you can make money. Um and prestige is obviously the way to go for a place like the New York Times. If you can do yep. this, you do it. The question is with everything else from, you know, uh from the very whatever the very beginning of the internet until the modern age is how much of your soul you sell in the process of uh of succeeding.
0: No, it's true. It's true, but I think, you know, I think here's the other thing about the Times. It's like and this comes up in the documentary with this part where they're they're um, laying off a bunch of their copy editors. Remember that, mm-hmm. which caused a protest, which we see among a walkout amongst Time staffers and a protest outside the building, which we see in the documentary. Is they've got to make money, and you know it's easy to fool ourselves when they're undressing Trump every day. That oh, they're doing great. Traffic's through the roof. Mm-hmm. Look, newspapers are still not a, are still a tough proposition. Yeah, and. Any revenue stream helps, right? Yeah. And I think that I think that horse is just out of the barn, right? I mean, it's it'd be nice to just be a newspaper that speaks in this very, you know, high-minded voice, Mr. Trump said dot dot dot. But that's not where we are anymore. And there's just there's no way to survive like that. I think they know that they know that too, you know? It'd be yeah, great and there's a, and
1: there's a sense in which, you know, I mean, we see I'm sure you see this throughout the Showtime show. There's a sense in which there's they there's a lot they can they can keep trying to regain trust, but they're probably all the people they've already whose trust they've already lost um are not going to be reconverted, or many of those people. So do the best job you can and continue to do it across
0: platforms and and hope that your you know, honesty or integrity prevails. If there is a second season of this, I'd love to see them confront that problem, the fake news problem, mm-hmm. a little bit more head on. We see Trump talk about it and we see a few reporters go out in the field, including one you know a couple of scenes in like conservative rallies and things like that where people are telling them, oh you're from the new york times i hate you just yeah. on principle but i think um i think showing reporters like dealing with that in the field especially people that are out in quote unquote real america mm-hmm. like that to me is just fascinating because sometimes it's just like oh you're from the new york times i hate you like okay great and then they just talk anyway yeah. it's just become <laughs> it's like a talking point for everybody but nobody actually believes it
1: what do you think we got to get we got to move on but what do you think the um I feel like we must have talked about this before, but Trump Trump's anti-Times animosity, Trump's animosity towards the New York Times, is it, do you think it's based on, I mean, is it based in their reporting since he nominated, I mean, since he started running for president primarily, or is it, can we trace this back to just like an old school New York, like, you know, I'm a New York Post guy, not a New York Times guy, like, you know, there's a different paper for every type.
0: I think in door, num- door number two yeah, and his sort of lifelong inferiority complex. That yep. The swells aren't treating him as a swell, mm-hmm. right? Always played in the daily news. He always played in the post. Time's a tougher, you know, tougher yeah. mountain to climb. New Yorker, Mark Singer writes the unflattering profile. It's the, um, yeah, I think the, I think that's certainly part of it. I think he craves, it's like, it's like any other, it's like any of the other old money people in New York. He craves their approval. Which is why I kept inviting those people in for interviews. I
1: agree. I agree, and I think that that's. I think. I mean, that that's what I was hoping you would say, and that's what I would assume the answer would be. Um, and that's why you know I think there's probably a direct line between there and and whoever average voter just coming up to a New York Times reporter and saying I hate you. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I. I don't know. It's interesting how that animosity sort of trickles down. Anyway, all right, David. We'll
0: talk about Fire and Fury Reloaded, Part Two, after this break. This summer, David, there is a huge soccer tournament. Maybe you've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the United States men's team did not make it, but Iceland did, David. And Rekha oh, yeah. Vodka is recruiting you to be an honorary Icelander and cheer for Iceland this summer. Iceland is the smallest nation to ever qualify. And they also take the field in red, white, and blue. Perfect match. When you cheer for Iceland, you get to do the Icelandic Viking chant. It's easy. Follow along with me, David. Huh. Huh. <laughs> huh. Did that sound like a convincing Icelander to you? Yeah. Most importantly, Iceland makes the delicious Reka Vodka, perfect for celebrating any victory. Go to Reka.com to get Team Iceland gear and find a viewing party near you. That's R-E-Y-K-A.com Real fans drink responsibly Reka Vodka, 40% alcohol by volume, 80 proof, distilled from grain Copyright 2018, William Grant & Sons New York, New York Okay, David Fire and Fury Part 2, story was broken by Axios, to which Michael Wolf, the author of Fire and Fury Part 1, said, quote, it's untitled, unscheduled, unfocused. What is he going to do? I mean, the whole thing, I was going to say the whole premise of the first book is the fox in the hen house. Mm-hmm. Probably more like the fox in the barracuda house or something, right? Uh-huh. But like, you you can't go back in, Right. You, you'll never get or
1: presumably not. I mean, the, the the I mean, the best possible version of this is if you put on a wig and a mustache and manage to keep getting access to all of the loose, all of the, the blabber mouths and the white <laughs> us. That would be the best version of this. That would be the best movie sequel.
0: Like, it's like, like the thick eyebrows yeah, thing. Yeah.
1: Um, No, the movie thing, I mean, I know there's so many easy Fast and Furious jokes. The movie thing would be like, it would be like the sequels, like the Night of the Museum 2, where it's just like, okay, he's out. Now, how do we get him back in, right? (laughs) You know, like we got to, what plot contrivance can put Michael Wolf back into, you know, sitting on that sofa with a pen and a pad, but... Yeah, like the camera pants to Trump. You again. Yeah. Um, I think that the, I think that... um, we discussed this a little bit on on our in our work Slack, but I, I think that the the outline of the book is pretty straightforward. I think it's, um, cutting room floor stuff stuff that he that didn't make it in the first book for because it wasn't particularly interesting or whatever else. It's just like sort of it's like when a band has to do their second album six months after they spent five years <laughs> making their first album. There's a lot of songs that didn't make the first album, you know? Yeah, um, that's a but, good point.
0: But there's the ones he didn't exhaust that may have turned out to be fake on the book tour.
1: Yeah, and then. And then there's got to be some stuff that he couldn't quite report out. You know, there was a lot of criticism of his of the, you know, his style or whatever, but it was fact checked and it got legally read and everything. There's probably some stuff that he couldn't quite source in round one that has either been proven true separate separately um, or that he's been able to source since then. And then, you know, this as we've covered a million times, there is no shortage of former White House staffers right now. You know, there's plenty of people to be talking to, even if you can't get get, get onto the onto the ground. that's true. um, and now he's got this reputation, better or worse, as a guy who's going he, he's going to be I mean, having the announcing the book in some ways was the flex. You know, we we're going to do this book. So now you can talk to me or
0: not. but like probably your coworkers are going to be talking to me, yeah. It does feel like the kind of sequel that it's just for all those reasons and also just publishing money reasons just inevitable. Right. There's no there's no way oh, yeah. it wouldn't happen. It's not always like, you know what, I'm going to go write a, a travelogue about France next. Yeah. Kind of got to write another Trump book.
1: Absolutely. And he's got a little bit of I mean, as big a deal as that book was, and it was an enormous deal. It, 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 it felt like it ended on a down note for Michael Wolf. Right. It, like there was yeah. this huge arc and explosion of all the stories that he broke and all this cool stuff. The book and then, tour was
0: not good. And then end. the
1: book tour. Yeah. Then it sort of got to like, you know, is he a responsible journalist? And like, is he and, and when he started making the out the allusions to the affairs or whatever else, and then just sort of the air came out and people stopped having He was on MSNBC every night for like, you know, two months, and then he was just never on, never seen again. There's a little bit of a redemption narrative for him, too.
0: Yeah, that's a good call. He does he's another one that just seems like kind of both craves and is denied the is denied the love of the you know, in this case the the highfalutin press or I mean, whatever it's, it's
1: sort of like the New York Times that yeah, I mean, it's like how much of your soul are you willing to give away? I mean, when he started making those sort of allegations on random shows, it felt like he was just grabbing on tr- trying to trying to keep relevant,
0: trying to you know keep getting invited back and it backfired he um the other thing about this is what if Trump is just like, you know what? Come come right back in. I mean, that would be the most Trumpian thing of all, yeah. right? That's what he did with the tabloids. Now, I don't know if he resents Michael Wolf because Michael Wolf became made a lot of money off Donald Trump.
1: Well, and Trump Trump had, to, I mean, I don't disagree with you entirely, but I mean, Trump had to like, formally went after him and denied they ever had dinner or denied he ever gave him permission to be in the White House. Be in the White House. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It so, I mean,
1: Trump would have to go back on his own word, but that's, that
0: hasn't stopped him in the past. That's true. That's true. We do have, like, there's there's a aforementioned Maggie Haberman has a memoir coming out that she was doing with Glenn Thrush, now being sort of retooled. There's a number. There's, like, the other thing is, like, there's he was important because he was first, right? Mm-hmm. Having the having the lead-off slot of Trump muckraking books yeah. was huge. Because we, we talk about this all the time. Like, you read your 40th Trump scandal story. You just begin to gloss over and don't understand what you're reading anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's even hard. It's actually mentioned in the Fourth Estate documentary. It's just like... They're just even the reporters who do this and like understand the differences and the nuances and the iterative developments in these stories. They just get blown away by it. Mm -hmm. So the other thing is if this comes out in like it's got to come out by 2020, right? Mm -hmm. This comes out in like early 2020. We may just be so Trump booked out. But I guess maybe there's just like a liberal block of book buyers that was like, I will buy anything. Please write book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the other big Trump. I mean, you you mentioned the Haberman book. I mean, I, I don't know what the other books are. Um, you know we're we're not going to get the uh, game change for this election. I mean, literally that the, that that book deal got <laughs> canceled. You know, like I, I mean, there, I'm sure there will be other ones. Um, but you know, there is a craven, there is a very craven book publishing aspect to this too, which is that like they will, <laughs> Barnes and Noble will buy cop, will will pre order this, will order this book based on the sales track of the last book. They'll ship, <laughs> ship way meat. more copies than they're going to sell. Mm-hmm. But that and then Barnes and Noble gets to return them for a full refund. And that's fine for probably for the publishers probably already preparing for that because it's positive cash flow. Even if they have to give the money back, it's a period of really high cash flow and they can write it off if it's a bust. Ah, So there's a lot of like keeping the light bulbs, you know, screwed in. At, for for any book publisher in this you know in, in this system,
0: so we have to write Fire and Fury two <laughs> ship Fire and Fury two. Yeah, we don't necessarily have to sell well, all. Ideally, the Fire and-
1: yes, you sell it, yeah, for sure. But like, it's really you know shipping those and getting the getting the cash flow thing is a big deal.
0: So that's the reason to write the book right there. Save the American publishing industry.
1: Yeah, and for Wolf, I mean, there, I mean the second book thing. I mean, there's always a the second book deal always has a little bit of a of a you know. um, Pat on the back sort of aspect to it too. That you know, you did well for us one time. We'll give it another shot.
0: All right, David, that's the press box this week. Back next week with more hot media takes. Thanks to our producer Jim Cunningham as always. See you then, David. See you later, man. This is not a New York Times joint. Huh. Huh. (laughs) Huh. It rubs the lotion on its skin and does this whenever it's told. It rubs the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again. Now it places the lotion in the basket. Now it places the lotion in the basket. Put the fucking lotion in the basket.
1: Guy knows how to flirt.